everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, which is a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm your host, Christian Napier, and today we have a fantastic guest, Maureen Sweeney. Maureen, welcome. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for participating in our little pet project. How are you doing? I'm doing excellent. I'm, uh, I haven't had to adjust too much to the new state of affairs in the world these days because I'm used to working from home just like you. So I'm good. (laughs) Yes. I'm used to working from home also. Although what I'm not used to doing is having the Olympic games postponed by a year and then trying to figure out well, how am I going to fill in the rest of my year if all of my work has been postponed by a year? Yeah. Are you having to deal with any of that with any of the events that you're working on? Um, yeah, we're we're sort of in a little bit of a um, an unknown, a gray area, I guess, right now, because we're waiting just like you to hear about the new dates. So um, I keep hearing from people. All right. We don't want to have too much discussion about backup plans until we pick the exact dates so we can be working to a specific target. So, um, yes, yes. Although I've also, um, run into the fact that a lot of my liaison folks at the IOC are trying to get stuff done that has sort of been on their to-do list for months and months. So, um, people have been reaching out to me to do sort of like administrative projects that they want to take care of now that they know they have extra time. So, it's it's been a weird time. <laughs> Boy, it has been a super super weird time. By the way, the IOC just announced today that the dates will be the 23rd of oh. July oh, through so. the 5th or something of August, 6th of August, something like that. So they just today made that announcement. Oh my gosh. Wow. Okay. So, so we're now on know the then. Date. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> yeah, so now that that's a, a certainty, we can get to doing all the other planning. So before we dive into Salt Lake 2002, um, aside from this Olympic stuff, what other kinds of cool things have you been doing since you left the Salt Lake Games? Oh my gosh. Wow. Um, So as you know, I've continued on working with um, Olympic organizing committees and the International Olympic Committee. So I've done a lot of games since Salt Lake. Um, But in addition, I do a lot of... um, other sports events and other sort of just big international events in general. Um, Outside of sports, they tend to be in the arena of sort of international NGOs, I would say. So um, I've been working on those types of projects. And I've also become a partner in, um, in a language services firm that's based in Seattle. So I do a lot of um, translation and interpretation as well as language consulting projects. So I've been busy. <laughs> yeah, you certainly have been busy. And we've worked on projects over the years too. So it's yeah. really great yeah. to, to work with people that you've known for a long time and that you trust. Yeah. And you guys have always done really great work for, for us Um, when I've been working on IOC projects and whatnot. We'll come back to all of that stuff a little bit later, but now let's wind the clock back and uh, talk about the Salt Lake Organizing Committee or SLOC as it was commonly known. Yeah. Um, What was your role there? So I was, well, so it's interesting. I joined three years out from the game. So I joined in 1999, the beginning of 1999 as the, um, 
I guess I was the manager of language services. And then about a year later, um, the person who was responsible for what's in the Olympics called venue protocol, which probably doesn't mean much to a lot of people, but it's sort of like hospitality for VIPs. Um, that person left and I took over their position as well. So I became the, I don't know, I think my title at the end was senior manager for language services and venue protocol or something like that. Now, tell us a little bit about where you came from before the games. Like, how did you find your way into the Olympic movement and into the uh, Salt Lake Organizing Committee? So I started um, in Atlanta. So I'm one of the folks that came from the Atlanta, I guess it was the 1996 games in Atlanta. And um, it's kind of a funny story how I ended up there. I um, I had been attending graduate school in California at a, a school that um, sort of focus on, focuses on international learning. So it's now called the Middlebury Institute of International Studies. So um, I was getting um, a master's in, I think we called it international public administration. And my idea was that I was going to work for like the UN or some big kind of international NGO type organization. So anyway, it was kind of funny because the games were coming up in Atlanta and the gentleman who was the, um, what they call the chief interpreter for the games, um, which is sort of a role that coordinates all the professional interpreting. He had been the Dean of translation and interpretation at the school, the graduate school that I attended. He posted a sign in the career development office. So, you know, where you go and look for jobs as a, as a graduate student, um, big poster that said, you know, um, Bill Weber, chief interpreter for the Olympic games is here to interview interpretation candidates only sign up here for a 15 minute interview. No one else sign up here. You are absolutely not allowed to sign up if you're not in the interpretation program. And I was like, well, I have a roommate in the interpretation program. <laughs> well, that qualifies. So that qualifies me, right? So I signed up um, and I ran out really quick because I didn't want to get in trouble. Um, and I showed up for the interviews and I was standing in the hallway, seeing people go in and come out. I was a little, like, a little bit nervous, but I went in and I said, hello, Mr. Weber. I am not an interpretation student, but I was just wondering if I could have five minutes of your time to talk to you about the Olympics, because this would be an amazing opportunity. And um, a good like 45 minutes later, I left with a lineup in the hallway of people who were not very happy with me because they knew I wasn't an interpreting student. Um, and I thought, well, gosh, that guy was fantastic. We really hit it off. He's, you know, he said he'd try to help me out if he could. Um, probably three weeks later, out of the blue, my phone rang and I picked it up like you used to do in the 90s. <laughs> and the person on the other end said, Hi, this is Cheryl from the Atlanta Committee for the Olympic Games, and I am interviewing you for your final review to be the assistant to the chief interpreter. And um, I did the interview, and they called me the next day and said, you're moving to Atlanta. Your job starts in two weeks. <laughs> wow, what an incredible story. 
<laughs> and I like totally changed my life. And it was, you know, because I, I mean, I, in general, I'm not a big like rule breaker, but I'm so glad that I kind of went out on a ledge that time. Cause I mean, it really, it, the trajectory of my career completely changed. So what happened in the three year period following the conclusion of Atlanta until you joined the Salt Lake organizing committee? So I knew in Atlanta that I really wanted to come to Salt Lake and it was, I'm from Oregon. So it was a lot closer to home. So, um, when the games wrapped up in Atlanta, actually I drove back through Salt Lake and um, with my parents and my Honda. And we stopped here and I interviewed with the woman who was going to become my boss in the future, Verena Rasmussen, who you've met, I'm sure. Um, so I interviewed with her and she said, listen, it's, it's pretty early. We're not hiring quite yet, but I'm interested. Went to Oregon, um, ended up uh, reconnecting with um I went to my 10 year high school reunion and ended up as a result of that, getting married <laughs> to a friend of mine from high school um, and had a different job was sort of working in nonprofits. And then um, at the end of 1998 um, started going through the formal interview process um, with Salt Lake and I got offered a job. I'm trying to remember the timing. You might remember better, but I got the job and then the whole Salt Lake scandal happened. So, so then my dart day got put on hold and eventually I, I think I started like April or May of 99, but it took like, there was like, Oh, you have the job and Oh wait, you know, we're firing everyone and there's going to be a hold on hire. So it, it got delayed, but eventually I got here. Well, you got here sooner than I did. I, I started in, uh, I think it was June of 2000. So I wasn't. You did? Yeah, it yeah. like you were there the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it only felt like forever. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's funny. So as a person who is not native to Salt Lake City or hadn't lived here before, what was the what was the most interesting thing about coming out to this brave new world, uh, Salt Lake City, Utah? (laughs) Um, Well, so, as you know, there's some cultural differences between here um, and the rest of the country, I guess for me. So. Interestingly enough, I grew up in a very small town in Southern Oregon. So there's actually a a very large community of LDS folks. (laughs) So I wasn't, this was, this part of it was not so new to me. You know, I had, you know, I, I'm not sure. I have a funny story. I, a, a boy that I dated in high school turned out, I found out later that one of my colleagues who sat across from me in Salt Lake City had been the mission partner to this boy in France. Anyway, it's kind of funny. So I I wasn't completely like surprised. Like some of my friends who moved here from like New York or Australia, they the the differences were bigger to them. For me, I think having grown up somewhere that it wasn't so culturally different, I would say, wasn't as shocking. Um, So that being said though, I think yeah, I mean, it's just, I, I, I think 
I'll tell you, I had a huge culture shock moving to Atlanta too. And I almost feel like for me, the culture shock of moving to Atlanta was bigger than the culture shock of moving here because I kind of had a sense and, and we're out West, right. And Oregon, although, you know, it's a more hippie type of thing. There's also a lot of similarities um, in Atlanta showing up and having people like, I don't know. There was a lot of, I, I didn't realize that some of the things I'd seen on TV about like being a Southern girl and having your hair done all the time and your pantyhose on. It was like, it was just, I don't know. So, you know, well, yeah. <laughs> well, is unique, I, but <laughs> all these places are unique, right? That's one of the fun that's things right. about that's doing the game. That's absolutely right. That's I so think. fun. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't have, I personally don't have any experience with um, the pantyhose and the hair <laughs> and that kind of thing, but, but from a certain point of view, I can, I can understand. So you come to Salt Lake, um, that means you have to find a new place to live, I assume. Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> were you fairly close to the offices? Was were they in the that Wells Fargo building by then or, no. or were they still in the old um the old offices before then? We were in the old offices. Um and it was funny. We so my husband and I got married in January um, of 1999. He said he wasn't going to move to Utah with me unless we got married. <laughs> so anyway, it's kind of funny. Um, so we, um, we were actually going to rent, I got a moving package. So I was talking to, um, the HR department, I got the job offer and then they gave me a certain chunk of money to move out here and, um, a, someone like a relocation coordinator and, we were just going to, we were just going to rent a place. And she was like, Hey, you can, you could actually buy a house here, which was a huge benefit of moving to Salt Lake because although it's become very expensive recently at the time, it was not, um, it was a nice place to kind of start out the next level of my career because you could live here, have a home, um, and not, and be able to afford that on the salaries that we were paid. So that was amazing. So I moved into um, this, actually, you know where I live, in the same neighborhood that I live in now. We actually bought a house like on Dearborn and now we're on Hartford. For those of you listening, the the streets in my neighborhood are alphabetical. So I didn't get very far away from one house to the next. But um, yeah, so we bought a house and moved to Salt Lake and... I was very close. I, it was a nice, you know, nice commute. So, so you come here in the aftermath of the, uh, you come here in the aftermath of the bid scandal. Um, aside from delaying your hire date, were there any other impacts of that on the work that you were doing did you have any budget uh, challenges? I know that, you know, they were worried about revenues with sponsors and things like this. Um, did you face any specific challenges as a result of that, of that scandal? Yeah, I, um, well, it was just a sort of a different point of view. So uh, I mentioned earlier that I work in, in venue protocol um, and in protocol in general, which does include, sort of hospitality for VIP, VIPs, including 
um, government officials and IOC members. And these were the folks, obviously, who um, were sort of involved in the scandal. <laughs> so they became a lot more, um, they meaning sort of the Olympic organizers in general, executives at SLOC and at the IOC were much more sensitive to um, kind of the levels of hospitality that were to be provided. So um, that was always a focus. Like, are we, are we going too far? Have we sort of scaled back the amenities to the point that they don't look suspicious, you know? Um, and so it was, it was a huge difference from somewhere like Atlanta, where I guess the, the perks for my clients were pretty nice to, um, just being very careful about what those perks looked like. So it was funny. I didn't really see the change in budget so much because that happened, you know, essentially as I got here, new staff, new budgets and numbers and such. But but I certainly could compare them to what I'd seen in the past and, you know, say, okay, there's no like chocolate fountains and, <laughs> you know, like Mercedes Benz. There's like, you know, we had a lot of goldfish crackers and hot dogs and <laughs> stuff in our lounges anyway <laughs> so it wasn't about the money it was about the optics it was a it was a lot more about the optics yes yes okay so i've got a language services question for you <laughs> okay and the reason i asked this question is because i had a responsibility over all of the workforce systems including the volunteer system so volunteers would apply and there was a section in that application where they would identify the languages that they spoke and there were a number of predefined languages and then there was a, a box for other Mm -hmm. And I remember people putting weird stuff in there, like someone put in the language of love in the box for other languages. And then another person put in Cash Valley English. And, nice. uh, you know, they've got a nice little accent there. Yeah. How many languages did uh, volunteers end up speaking uh, for the games? Um, it's so funny that you mentioned uh, the weird languages. I remember having like seven or eight people who said they spoke fluent Esperanto. I'm like, that is not, that's a made up thing. You guys, anyway, so, so yeah, I remember this well. Um, so the num so the way it works, um, in language services is we don't just provide all the languages that the volunteers say they speak. Thank goodness. Cause no one wants the volunteer speaking the language of love or Esperanto or oh, <laughs> certainly not, not Cash Valley, Utah, English. Anyway. You don't have any IOC <laughs> members that speak in Esperanto? <laughs> Sadly, we probably do, but <laughs> that's another story, Christian. Um, the other kind of funny, unique thing about Salt Lake City is that in most games, we're struggling to find volunteers at a high enough, high enough skill level to cover all of our languages because, you know, for instance, something like Czech or Finnish, those languages are, are harder to find from a volunteer population in Utah. It was the only games in my experience thus far where we had, I think triple the number of applicants for language services that we needed. And when you got down to evaluating their skills, we still probably had double the number of highly skilled applicants that beyond what we needed. So I spent, instead of spending time trying to recruit 
people to cover languages. I was spending a lot of time calling people and apologizing because, you know, I know you speak fluent French, fluent Norwegian, and you have, you know, a background in Italian and, you know, Romanian, but I have seven other people who have that too. (laughs) So it was really, it was really an interesting challenge for me after Atlanta, where we were so short on, on everything to come here where suddenly I just had so many people who were so good that I didn't know what to do with them. (laughs) Yeah. So you you speak Norwegian and that's fantastic, but we've got a great transport attendant position for you. (laughs) Exactly. Those people were not happy with that answer. Are are you familiar with the term T3? Let me tell you about T3. Yeah. You like driving. Uh, You'll love it. You'll love it. You'll love it. It's fantastic. It's so much fun. You'll gain experience in some of the best parking lots in the Valley. So, um, yeah, no, that's awesome. You had two different responsibilities as venue protocol and also language services. Was it difficult trying to find a balance between the two? Hmm, that's a good question. I I don't think so. I mean, I, I think for me, um, I felt like there were a lot of synergies. Um, and before, uh, before this games where I had these two jobs, venue protocol and language services had always been very separate and part of different departments. And I think in Salt Lake, we actually, the fact that I was responsible for both of those departments allowed us to kind of look at creative solutions that hadn't been attempted before. So for instance, um, Salt Lake was the first time that we decided to combine the duties of language services and venue protocol into um, individual volunteers. So um, we basically, uh, we did have some volunteers who just did really unique languages and some volunteers who just did um, protocol, but we had, we were able to combine several people. So for instance, if you had fluent French and good hospitality skills, which is something that you often find in one human, um, we were able to take those people and have them fulfill a dual role. So they would be doing hospitality in a lounge area um, or, you know, assistance in a VIP stand. Um, And then if they got a call to go and interpret for, let's say, I don't know, in the, um, where's the commonplace, let's say like the help desk or, um, at doping control or in a medical station, we would then release them to go do that. So it was kind of nice because we could shrink our volunteer numbers a little bit and we could keep people busy. Um, so I, I, I think it was more, it made it kind of more fun and there were challenges and new ways to approach things by combining those two areas that hadn't been combined before. All right. Speaking of challenges, you just mentioned that there. What was the, in your view, what was the hardest thing that you had to do uh, in the planning or delivery of the games here in Salt Lake? So I was thinking about this because you had sent this question along and I was trying to think of like interesting stories about this. But in reality, what I kept coming back to was, I mean, when I took this position, I was 30 and I was, um, you know, I'd had like 
one other big job um, in Atlanta. Before that, it had been more like, you know, student jobs. Um, And this was my first like serious professional position. Um, In the end, I had, I don't know, you know, 25 or 30 staff and I had a couple of big contractors. Um, So for me, the biggest challenge I think was, was learning how to manage a big team and a big team that was um, from all over the world. I had a pretty international team. Um, I had some big personalities. Um, And I think for me, learning how to be a good boss, how to deal with people who didn't do what they were supposed to be doing. I mean, it was the first time I had to fire people. Um, those, those were my challenges because I hadn't done that stuff before. And I think, um, it was a super amazing opportunity looking back to get to have that kind of high level management experience as a fairly young person. Um, that being said, there were, you know, I had some crazy, crazy staffing and HR issues that um, I hope I never have again. <laughs> well, I think we've all kind of had to deal with that at some point in our career. Yeah. You talk about the big personalities. Well, not only do you have to deal with that on your team, but with venue protocol, that's yeah. your job is to deal with big personalities, right? Yes. Yes. Any interesting or humorous <laughs> anecdotes without naming names um, uh, during your time working with these big, important VIP personalities? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Um, I, now, here's one where I have to, like, pick just one. <laughs> oh, you can pick how much time you want. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, for sure. I think our client group is definitely, um, you know, fairly privileged. And um, I think that the, whereas today, I think that expectations, sorry, that's my dog. That's good. <laughs> um, that's one of the VIPs you got to take care of. One of the VIPs, exactly. I got my husband on that now. Um, so, uh, these days, I think the idea that the the um, kind of perks around being one of our clients are not so extreme has has kind of sunk in a little over the years. So I do feel like, you know, although there are people who are always going to be challenging. Um, just because of the lives that they lead normally as royalty or heads of state or whatever. Um, I I do think in general, people have sort of come to understand that the Olympics is not a place for, you know, such extravagances (laughs) Um, in Salt Lake that had all sort of just changed a little bit. And there were people who also you know, as clients were not super happy with us, they, you know, they felt like, um, it was our fault that this scandal had happened and, you know, we should, you know, they weren't, it was interesting because initially people had a lot of reservations. I think by people, I mean, our client group had some reservations about, about these games and how, um, welcoming we were going to be and what the attitude was going to be like for them coming here. Um, I do feel like by the end, you know, people 
loved it. So it was, it, I don't know, I'm going off track it, it, a little bit here, but, but it wasn't, it was interesting to see the change in sort of attitude and perception of, of the Olympic family client group overall, because they came in with a little bit of like, Hmm, yeah, this, we had some bad mis- business with these guys. Um, are they all going to be really uptight and, you know, not a lot of fun to deal with. Um, and by the end, I honestly say that I feel like we completely turned them around and everyone left saying like, Oh my God, this was so much fun. And the snow was so great and the people were so welcoming and it was such an amazing experience. So I'm answering a little bit of a different question, but I will say, although some of them came in a little tough to deal with, I feel like everyone left super impressed with what we did. So you were able to overcome the goldfish crackers and the, <laughs> oh and, the and the hot dogs and the wahoos. That though that I had to hear about for at least like six games after. <laughs> I mean, I can't even I I can't tell you how many times I had to hear about the, the the hot dogs and the goldfish. And for those of you who are listening to this, so we made a decision that we were going to, in our hospitality lounges, we were going to scale down the food service so that it wasn't so fancy and ostentatious, which I think would have actually been fine. I think if we had had goldfish, apple slices, and hot dogs like every third day... <laughs> people actually wouldn't have been that bad with it. The problem was that we had the same food every single meal, every single day. It never, ever, ever changed. And our clients, although some of them are fancy schmancy people, some of them are like people from the sport federations who can't leave the venue and have to eat in our lounges every single day. And every single meal. And it does, I mean, it was a lot. I have to be honest. Like uh, one of my, when I was writing down like challenges and funny stories, I actually wrote like goldfish, hot dogs and apple slices. <laughs> and, I, and I'm a fan of those food groups. <laughs> I, I mean, in, Tor- in Torino, in Vancouver, I think it wasn't until I got to Sochi, did people stop saying to me, when we talked about catering, now, you know, we can't just have the same food like we did in Salt Lake City. You know, we can't have those goldfish every single meal. Yeah, you're right. It takes a long time for the institutional memory to fade. And sometimes um, you want that fading to happen. Exactly. <laughs> what other kinds of interesting stories did you write down on your paper that we need to we need to bring to the surface today? All right. All right. Let me see. Um So one of the questions that you were asking was about interesting people that I worked with. And there were a ton of interesting people I worked with. I I picked like three out that I just to this day adore. Um, So one of the best stories. um, So I hired a guy named Mike Caldwell, who I think, you know, um, to be one of my venue protocol managers in Salt Lake. He, he worked for me for about a year. He came in early. Um, when he arrived, he was this like very handsome, rugged, like kind of ski bum guy. That was the vibe he gave, but you started talking to him and he was very smart, super personable. Um, 
And I was like, well, this guy's going to be fantastic. I'm going to hire him. Uh, so he brought, came on board, like exceeded all my expectations. So he's one of these guys that just, I think it's almost like, this will sound terrible, but it's sort of the stereotype that sometimes women fall into where they're like, oh, she's very pretty and personable, but can she really do anything? And that was a little bit the attitude people had about Mike. Um, and Mike ended up being really smart and being my fixer, essentially. So every time someone got fired or demoted, he would have to go take over their venue and fix it. Um, and just uh, love the guy. So now it's funny. Now he's the mayor of Ogden, which um, Ogden is where the curling venue was. And he was responsible for the curling venue for me initially. But then I had to keep changing his job because he was too good to just do the the curling venue. Um, but now he's like everyone's fixer because he's Mayor Mike and he's like running, I think, what, for a second or third term. And he's, you know, I think everyone's sort of discovered what I learned about him, which is he's just awesome. So, so that was one funny story. Um, the other person that I just adored working with was um, Spence Eccles Sr. So, the Eccles family here in Salt Lake is very well known. They're philanthropists. They have a lot of money um, and there are many generations of them. But the oldest one, the patriarch, was our um, our mayor in the village. So there's generally someone assigned to be sort of the ceremonial host of the village um, and they call them the mayor. And uh, Mr. Eccles was our mayor and he was so much fun to work with. He's kind of a character <laughs> and his job was to, um, present the gift at the team welcome ceremonies each morning. So he would go on stage, he would present this ceremonial peace pipe to the, to the team that was being welcomed. And he was just kind of, he's so funny. He started like, he talks, he's like, hello, Maureen, how's it going this morning? <laughs> um, and he would do tours for us. And I mean, he wasn't young and he was so like proud of being the mayor, but also just kind of a, a fun sort of salty old guy who did a great job. <laughs> um, and then the last person that was really fun um, in Salt Lake in addition to the mayor, because we had so many VIPs that wanted to be involved in some way and so many people that Mitt kind of wanted to thank for their support over the years, we started a program called the Mayor of the Day. So in addition to Spencer Eccles, who was the mayor, we had a sort of celebrity mayor each day. Um, and <laughs> so it was kind of the whole program every day was an adventure because you didn't really know what you were going to get. This person would swoop in. Um, they would get, you know, their mayor jacket. They would. And then we'd kind of have to figure out, are we hosting them and entertaining them? Or are they going to actually help us to do tours and welcome people? Are they working or are they being hosted. It was kind of a guess you had to make. Um, but one of the most fun ones was, um, so Gladys Knight from Gladys Knight and the Pips was one of our mayors of the day. And she, it was just so, it was kind of surreal. Like here I am in, at the university of Utah in the president's circle with all my Olympic volunteers. And now like 
here's Gladys Knight in her little mayor of the day jacket, like asking me what her job is. <laughs> so anyway, those were, I, I felt like those three people kind of summarized the unusual group of humans that made up this experience. So I just have a question. You coming from your very liberal Medford, uh, Oregon background, did you ever smoke the peace pipe with Skunk <laughs> No, no, no. We were, that, that was, that was on the prohibited list, prohibited list. Plus I don't think they actually worked. <laughs> I think they well, were, you know, you know, I think they just had, they had some like feathers stuck on them and it was quite funny though. You've seen Spence. So him with his like bushy eyebrows and his peace pipe and is like, Oh, there Ukrainians. Here you go. <laughs> awesome <laughs> oh that's a fantastic uh <laughs> mental picture i know how. yes right <laughs> I, I, yeah i'll file that one away you've talked to us a little bit about what you've been doing since the games but how did these salt lake games impact your life and your career i mean i would say i mean they've impacted like every element of my life and career um you know after salt lake my husband and I decided that we wanted to stop, you know, we didn't want to keep moving for the games. And um, because of the people that I met here who went on to Torino and in particular, Paul Foster, who went, was one of our colleagues and went on to be the head of international relations in Torino. Um, he was the first person to bring me on as a consultant for those games. So I was able to stay in Salt Lake and, you know, start working remotely, which as you know, is like getting that first opportunity to do that. So you can prove to people that you can be effective, um, but not in the office every single day <laughs> for three years. Um, like that, I never would have met Paul and had kind of the chops, I guess, and the experience to pitch myself as a consultant had I not had the, you know, the full sort of three-year full-time management stint here. I, I'm, I'm so, it's so interesting thinking about how many people I still work with, like practically on a daily basis that I worked with in Salt Lake. I mean, that, at the Salt Lake Games, let's say. I mean, it's kind of funny, really, if you think about how many high-level people are sort of still associated with the games that came out of Salt Lake. The other last thing I would say is that uh, so as you know, I now have a daughter who's a, an ice hockey player and she was actually not even born during the Salt Lake games. She was born afterwards, but, um, you know, because of Salt Lake, we have nine Olympic sized ice sheets within half an hour of our house. We have a, you know, a girls hockey program that really came out of the funding and support from the games. Um, so I think as a, you know, a parent of a young athlete, I see the huge impact that that the Salt Lake Games and the fact that we were financially successful, um, how that's impacted the community kind of beyond what we do in our our work. Um, it's it's created a, a, a community where we have like some pretty awesome resources that have impacted a lot of people who weren't even alive when the games happened.
one thing that I want to do is I want to build a playlist of songs that we all listened to when we were working for the Salt Lake Organizing Committee. I'm going to put it on Spotify. I've actually created the list already. It's called Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective. It's on Spotify. And so as we continue to do these interviews, that list is going to get longer and longer with songs. What what song were you thinking about? Uh, what song was in your headphones um, well, actually, I think uh, you joined Slock before the iPod even was a reality, I know, right? right? So, oh, my God. <laughs> so maybe you were listening to it on a cassette in your car. A Walkman. A Walkman. A, Walkman, <laughs> yeah, a, a disc Walkman. Oh, God. A like Discman. Yeah, Discman. Disc there you go. What's the song? Okay, okay. So it, it, can I have to, I'm going to do a band instead of a song. I'm sorry. You can. So what immediately came to mind when you asked this was after closing ceremonies, we all left and went to the village and cake was playing. I don't know if anyway, we, we snuck in. <laughs> it was the last night. Um, and it was this huge party and we listened to cake for like half an hour. And it was like this jubilation. Um, so I, I would say like anything from cake, uh, would is like always makes me think about the Salt Lake games. So then there, there was a song about like, I want a girl with a cool, a big hat and a cool jacket. I don't know. I'll send you the name of the song. There was right. one particular we'll song. <laughs> um, Let's and go then to the restaurant. Restaurant. So we always went around the corner. So when we were in the Wells Fargo building, there was a restaurant called, I think, the Mediterranean. It was like you went downstairs and I think it was called the Mediterranean. And we went there all the time at the Wells Fargo building. When we were at the old building, we went to that um, Gourmandise bakery place always because it was right down the street. So those are the two, Love depending those. on the building. <laughs> I still go to Gourmandise all the time to get croissants. I think, yeah, and that's, that's a, and things. Yeah, everybody, everybody did. I think that's like probably half the people will say that, but that that's a, give give that one the thumbs up. And then a favorite memory. I mean, I have a, a ton of good memories, but um, two quick ones. One, we did our very last team building at the. Um, at the ice sheet in Ogden and we all did curling together and it was, we had like four teams and it was all of my people were on board by then. And it was so fun. I just remember that going curling with the group was, was awesome. And it was right before we became like flat out busy so we could still have a good time. And then the second one um, I always think about because currently in my language services company, I'm partners with Todd Dennett, who worked for me at Slock. Um, and he was my flag manager, <laughs> which for those of you listening is really a thing. He's responsible for all the flags. And to this day, he is the international flag consultant, like right now working for Paris, crazy. Um, but during the Paralympics, Todd got mono and I had to take over as the flag manager. And I was not super happy about it because the flag manager has to go to every venue every day, make sure the flags are done correctly. Um, so I was a little grumpy, um, but we didn't have anybody else to do it. And, and then it ended up being so 
fun. I found out that he actually had a really great job um, because you get to see every single medal ceremony in the venues and um, just getting to participate in every one of those is like, oh, (laughs) you get to be at the best part of the games for those athletes. So I'd have to say pre-games curling, games time being the fill-in flag manager was pretty awesome. I wonder how many people are thinking, oh, you know, what should I do for a career? Hey, I could do the flags. I mean, nobody <laughs> even thinks about this, right? No. Um, when I offered him the job, he was like, you want me to do what? He had just, um, he, I had a wave of people who all came out of the Clinton and Gore White House because the election had happened and all those people were out of jobs. So I hired, I would say a quarter of my staff came from, you know, the White House, and he had been some bigwig for Al Gore. And I was like, so I know you used to be this really important political person, but do you want to come run flags? <laughs> and he took it. We probably just scratched the surface on those stories. I'm sure you've got another 50 uh, or so like, hours of stories. <laughs> uh, but I really appreciate you taking time this morning to, to share those. And I guess one final thing, um, someone, I, I, did you work with Bob Garf at all? He, he passed away this weekend. And- I, I heard it's very sad. He, yeah, yeah. He was a venue chair for us and was involved. I mean, he was obviously very high level, but he was in and out of the offices and it's really sad. Yeah. It's a sad day for the, for the games here in Salt Lake city. Cause he was a big supporter and, yeah, and uh, so I just wanted to give a little word um, yeah. there well, uh, to him and his family. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much, Maureen, for taking the time once again. And well, we'll just keep on I'll working probably, on fun things I'll together talk here. To you tomorrow about something else. <laughs> Actually, Actually, we do have a call. We have a call tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, so we'll talk tomorrow. But, uh, right. Thank you once again for joining us. And thank you Thanks to all the listeners. Me. If anybody um, is interested, how should they uh, contact you? I So it's good you mentioned this. I actually am on Instagram. I joined not that long ago because my 14-year-old wanted to join. And I said she couldn't do it unless, you know, I had access to her website. <laughs> So, um, so you can find me on Instagram at Maureen Emily Sweeney. So it's private, but I'll, uh, I'll accept you if you don't look too dodgy. <laughs> All right, Maureen, thanks so much again for the time. And uh, thank you listeners for consuming the podcast. So please uh, like us and subscribe. 